Hello everyone, and thank you for joining me for this podcast on the forensic analysis of footprints and footwear. So let's presume that you're listening to this whilst wearing some kind of shoes. Just have a look now at the bottom of them. I'm guessing that they have some unique patterns, some indents, maybe grooves, maybe some mud on them or soil, depends where you've been. Maybe have some little nicks on the shoe that only you could have made. Now what if I told you that we can not only match that shoe to you, but we could find where you bought it from, when, how much you paid for it, in fact how many of that shoe are even in existence. You see, if we need those kinds of details, it is possible to get them. Some people commit crimes and so are very conscious of where they place their hands, but they totally forget the tracks that their feet are making. In a vicious attack in 2009, brutal robbers left pub landlord Jonathan Robinson needing emergency surgery. He was beaten and then run over by his own car as he left the Golden Lion pub with £2,500 worth of takings. As he lay on the ground with a broken leg, a thug viciously stamped on his head before seizing the cash. Forensic officers took close-up photographs of the footprint on Mr Robinson's forehead and they were scanned into police computers to look for matches on the national database. Detectives spoke to shoe manufacturers in the hope of uncovering a potential lead. It was believed that the gang responsible were from the same estate as Mr Robinson. A VW Golf used by the robbers was later found abandoned. It had been stolen and fitted with false plates. Despite a thorough investigation, sadly, no one was charged for this attack. But this is just one, granted a very unusual example, of where footprint analysis may be of use. As people walk around, their shoes track over hard surfaces, acquiring dust. Dirt, residue, grease, blood, oil, paint, moisture. Shoes then redeposit these materials back onto other surfaces as they track over them. Two types of prints can be left. Patent ones that are visible and then ones that we say are invisible, so we call them latent. Now, regardless of the surface, there is a transfer of both class and individual characteristics. These will help determine if a suspect's footwear made the impression or not. The process includes the detection and recovery of the footwear evidence from the scene of the crime, enhancing that evidence if appropriate, producing known impressions of the shoes being examined, and then finally, comparing the crime scene impressions with the footwear. It's actually quite easy to make your own footwear impression, and you don't need any complex materials. You simply take around 800 grams or so of specialist casting powder, put it in a bag, add a bit of water and mix that bag in your hands until a a sort of smooth consistency has been reached. You then just pour that mixture over over an impression pad using a spatula to kind of smoothen it out. And then that's it. The powder just simply solidifies within about 30 minutes or so. You can then remove the hardened powder and obtain a complete 3D cast of your own footwear. This basic technique is used by forensic teams. There are two forms of footwear impressions. Three-dimensional impressions and two-dimensional impressions, where you have just kind of like length and height, but no significant depth to them. 
three-dimensional impressions are those that remain after a shoe has permanently deformed a surface. Predominantly found on exterior surfaces such as sand, soil or snow, they can be very shallow or very deep. The resulting quality and impressions uh, in regards to the detail of a 3D print depends really on quite a few factors. It depends on the composition of the substrate in which the print was left. It depends on the amount of moisture and also the presence of contaminants, so things like sticks, stones, debris. Two-dimensional impressions are those made on non-giving uh, surfaces such as tile, uh, linoleum or wood flooring. It includes those made on, say, paper, plastics, doors, carpet, clothing, broken glass, and a large number of porous and non-porous surfaces. 2D impressions can be varied because the shoe may contain combinations of dust, dirt, soil, residues, grime, oils and blood, so things I referred to earlier, and that makes the methods of recovering much harder. Furthermore, some prints can be highly visible, others can be latent. If a crime has been committed and the perpetrator has washed blood off the surface, then here's a question for you. Are there any chemical tests that you could do to reveal any remnants or traces? Well, in fact, there are. And if you are interested, then I'd recommend you listen to the podcast that I recorded on forensic serology and the detection of body fluids. So let's get into what pattern analysis can actually reveal. Well, a vast number of things as it happens. The identi- ident- identification rather, of footwear. It can prove a suspect was at the crime scene. It can be used for the elimination of footwear, maybe based on differences in class characteristics. Participation in a crime can be determined. It can prove suspect's presence at a particular crime scene. The location of impressions. It can show the point of entry or exit and the locations of evidence. Interestingly, it can help provide a rebuttal or confirmation of a suspect's alibi. It can prove that a suspect is lying depending on whether their own prints are found in incriminating places. The determination of the shoe brand. Through use of a footwear database, that can actually be deduced. Even linking scenes of crime is quite useful in investigations of repetitive crimes as such. Then there's the determination of shoe size. If the manufacturer is known, the number of perpetrators is something that experts will be able to determine. There's a whole range of things. In fact, the number of prints recovered can indicate that last one. Then there's the association with other evidence. And backtracking can often help to locate that evidence. An interesting one is gait characteristics. Although forensically this isn't a substantial line of inquiry, it is something that shoe prints and impressions can help to reveal. Although lots of things can affect the gait and the way that someone walks or carries themselves. And finally, tracking. You can make observations and record along a sort of presumed path, let's say, if evidence leads so. Now let's imagine that you do find these prints. How exactly do we lift them? Well, it depends if it's a 2D or 3D footwear print we're looking at. If it's 2D, once an impression has been photographed, it can be lifted. Lifting improves the visibility and the detail and it enables the removal of the impression in the lab. 
electrostatic lifting is a common technique employed. By passing a cur- current of around about, I think about 10 to 15,000 volts across footwear evidence, you can actually cause the particles that make up that evidence to transfer to lifting film. Then there's fingerprint powder. In combination with something called microsil, which is a casting material, different types of powders can be used on impressions, where electrostatic lifting doesn't work. Dental stone is a primary means of casting footwear impressions that are 3D. On wet surfaces, a spray wax may have to be used first to seal the impression. Dental stone is mixed with water in a Ziploc bag for about 3 minutes or so, 3-4 to four minutes. The stone hardens in about 20 minutes. And in about 24 to say 48 hours, it will have fully hardened. In fact, this is similar to the method I was describing earlier. Poor impressions may have to be enhanced. And luckily, there are various means to do that. Forensic photography, so for example using ultraviolet or infrared. There's physical methods such as latent powder or electrostatic lifting. And chemical methods, including the use of reagents such as leucocrystal violet, amido 10 black, luminol or fuchsin acid. The latter few are used predominantly to enhance bloody prints. And then, of course, in today's day and age, digital methods. So software such as Adobe Photoshop, they can be used to enhance impressions. So let's clarify the exact details of the forensic examination. Step one would be obtaining the footwear from a suspected person or persons. All footwear that a suspect owns are seized for comparison and impressions are made. Step two, the elimination of footwear. So footwear worn by police officers, medical personnel particularly, should be accounted for when considering impressions left at a scene. Step 3. Obtaining known test impressions of footwear. Impressions of known footwear are made and then compared with suspected footwear impressions to ensure matching samples show detailed characteristics of the shoes. When it comes to areas of footwear to be examined, we look at the design of the shoe, the physical size and its shape, wear marks, individual identifying characteristics, so cuts, tar, gum, for example. As I suggested right at the start of this podcast, when I asked you to look at your own footwear, the key principle here is that no two shoes are identical. Forensic teams need to analyse individualistic marks, as they're called, those produced in manufacture, so such as things like air bubbles in the sole, and those created when a person moves, so maybe it's like cuts or rips. Keeping what I've just said in mind, I'd like to close this podcast by discussing a case that many of the listeners might be aware of. It's certainly one of the most high-profile cases in my lifetime, and that's the murder of Meredith Kircher and the tale of the prime suspect, Amanda Knox. Now, I'm not going to share my own thoughts about this case, and at the time of recording, Miss Knox has been acquitted of all charges. What I do want to do, however, is just present some interesting evidence to you. Now, I'm thinking about one article in particular, and this headline. Woman's bloodstained footprint found under Meredith Kircher's body. 
and the opening line. The bloody print of a shoe similar in size to those worn by Amanda Knox was found by Italian detectives beneath the dead body of her British flatmate, Meredith Kircher. So police found the body, or the bloody rather, shoe print under Miss Kircher's body, which was lying in a pool of blood on the floor of her bedroom in the cottage that she shared with Miss Knox in Perugia, Umbria. A woman's shoe print was found in Meredith's room of size ranging from about 36 to 38 on a pillow placed under the body, said Napoleone, the head of Perugia's murder squad. And Banner Knox wears 37. Police forensic experts told her that the print came from a woman's shoe because of its shape and small size. But it never matched any footwear owned by Miss Knox and investigators do not know who the shoe which left the bloodstain actually belongs to. Prosecutors allege that Miss Kircher, a university exchange student, was killed during what began as a sort of drugs fueled uh, group sex game with a Mr Salisto, Knox's boyfriend, clamping her arms and a third person accused of sexually assaulting her. Miss Knox then allegedly stabbed the British woman three times in the neck causing her to bleed to death. All three deny involvement, and to this day, no one is sitting in prison convicted of Meredith's murder. In this high-tech world of DNA analysis, computerised bloodstain spatter analysis and video imaging, it seems a little mundane to talk about something as simple as shoe print analysis. Did you know? Footprints are the third most common type of evidence found at a crime scene. It's just something to think about. As always, if you've got any questions, get in touch at kytosbiology at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening.